Welcome to FinTech's DEI Discussions podcast series. This is the Humans of FinTech chapter, and we are here today to celebrate the wins, raise awareness of the challenges, and walk the talk for change across the entire financial technology industry. Today, I'm super excited because we are joined by Omar Laul, Data Monetization Data Products Specialist. And he is building cool, lucrative, and disruptive products out of data. He is here today to tell us how he walks the talk for inclusion across the sector and what more he wants done. Omar, it's great to have you with us. Great to be here, Nadia. So tell us a bit more about your specialism in your words. So first of all, thank you for having me. It's not every day that you get to speak about diversity, inclusion, and fintech. So it's, a, it's an exciting forum and an exciting series of podcasts. So as you mentioned, I'm a data monetization specialist, which is essentially what I do is I help companies and organizations understand the value of their data, help them to monetize their data, productize it, and then sell it to the market to third parties. What do we mean by that? We've all all heard that data is the new oil and this is a data economy, et cetera. The data essentially has value. Uh, one use case we're all aware of is, of course, advertising. We all get targeted ads. You walk down the street with a friend, you see something at a window, you Google that, and then you get home. By the time you got home, you got three different ads with the same article you Googled. That is based on data, right? So other than advertising, there are other use cases for people who are interested in third-party data. The main one would be the investment use case. Hedge funds, mutual funds, and different types of investment organizations leverage data in order to compete. They need data in order to track the performance of publicly traded companies or private companies in order to really be able to make investment decisions. And there's a lot of money at stake in these decisions. Um, so there's a whole industry that kind of flourished around that use case. It's called the alternative data industry. And it is today the leading industry for data products, data analytics products, other than the advertising industry, which we just discussed. And it's a highly lucrative one, right? Because we're looking at a sector that is, that is it's very lucrative. It's hedge funds run billions and billions of pounds and dollars in investment money. And so they're willing to go th to great lengths in order to make sure that they, they make the right decisions with their investments. And so third-party data is now prerequisite really for a lot of them to compete. So what I do specifically is that I help companies build data products, which are mostly geared towards that type of vertical, the, the investment vertical. And, and the reason we do this is, A, this is, this is where the money is, this is where there's a use case, there's the bandwidth, there's the, the ability of these organi organizations to leverage third-party data and to arrive some sort of uh, value out of it. And it's also a gateway for them to, to build products that could be sold to other parts of the economy, which we can talk about in, mm. in a bit. Yeah, it's super fascinating because you're absolutely right. Everyone's talking about data at the minute, the new oil. Not that many people are wholly comfortable with how they even analyze, process, learn from, monetize data, right? So it's great talking to you because you, know, you explain quite a complex subject clearly. Um, but what I'm interested in, in hearing more from uh, with you is what do you see for the future of monetization of data in the industry? So 
That's a very interesting uh, question, because I just described essentially the two main use cases for third-party data. One would be the advertising industry, which uses personal, personal identifiable information, right? We want to know that Nadia is interested in the sofa, so we're going to target sofa ads to Nadia. The other one would be the investment vertical, which is obviously a, a much more regulated environment, and as such, they're not interested in what we call PII, because that information should remain uh, confidential. And so these are the two main verticals. This is where this is what most companies in the world today, if they monetize the data, they productize it and they sell it onwards, these are the two main kind of target markets for them. However, in the future, we're expecting more verticals and more parts of the economy to join that kind of data bandwagon. Probably next in line would be the professional services organizations. So the large consultancies, the large organizations that help, that help guide companies and help guide the economy in different ways. A lot of the time their advice or their guidance is based on personal expertise or publicly available data. Very rarely is it based on data monetization products or data which is privately held and then sold to third parties. So we're expecting these organizations to, to join that uh, data revolution. And then lastly, corporations. It is quite mind-boggling still today to see how many companies, large companies in the world, are just completely uh, unaware of the value that they can derive by data which exists out there in the world, which is not their own, which they can purchase in order for them to have better visibility into their markets, into their clients, customers, and into their competition. A good example of that would be our mobile phones, smartphones, right? We all have one. So much of the B2C or the consumer economy is being captured by the different apps, the different transactions we do with our phones today. To the extent that you can tap into them and look into them, there's a story to be told, right? We can see what, where people are going, what is their location, how much are they shopping for, what are they shopping for, which brands they're loyal to, are they loyal to... Are they looking at, for example, are they shopping at one e-commerce website and then a competing one? And what is the market share? So all of this information that is captured now is information that has a story to tell. My role, really, is to help companies extract that, understand which part is important, and build a product which tells a story. Mm. And that story has a lot of value. Yeah, it certainly does. If I'm a company out there right now, what should I be thinking about to set myself up for this data-driven future? That's a really good question. Uh, one that I'm asked quite often. So people say, I'm just starting a business. We're not ready to monetize the data yet. We don't have much data. Or we have a very small panel of customers, etc. cetera. Uh, but I want to build a business which in the future will be able to tap into the revenue potential of monetization. So what do I need to do? The first thing really is ownership. You should be thinking about what is the data you capture and do you fully own it? Do you have the full rights for that data so you can then later mm -hmm. use these rights and create a, a product out of it and own that product, right? A lot of, especially in fintech, a lot of companies are essentially facilitating different types of actions, mostly transactions, right? In the money economy, the payment ecosystem, etc. So a lot of solution providers, technology providers, they're not, they're the middlemen. 
or the middle person between the customers and 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 the interface. Mm -hmm. And as such, a lot of times it's commercial agreements between the solution providers and the underlying customers they're servicing, will, whether it's a, a B2C or a B2B, would not include any data ownership. So essentially, they see the data passes through them, but they don't actually own it. Mm. So one thing you want to think about is, can you potentially design a commercial agreement that will retain some of these rights so that you can at least control and own some of this data at a certain level of aggregation? Mm. The second thing you want to think about is history. As I described, there's two main use cases for third-party data in the world. One would be advertising and one would be the, the investment vertical. For the advertising uh, vertical, buyers of data don't really care about that much history. They probably care about a year of history at the most. And the reason is they want to know what you're interested in buying now and not what you're interested what you were interested in buying two years ago. That has no uh, that's probably have a very low impact on, on what it is you're you're looking to buy, especially in a fast retail environment. In the investment vertical, however, which is again the second most lucrative pod of buyers that we have in the world currently, history is the name of the game because when you build a data analytics tool, you want to see the performance of companies or the KPIs of companies over time. And that performance allows you to see whether or not the data that you now productize and put out in, in the world correlates to some sort of benchmarked matrix so that you can see that if, if, it, if it correlated into, in the past, it should correlate into the future and has some predictive power to it. Storing the data obviously is important, not deleting it, and doing it over time will increase the value of the data and the underlying product that you're going to build out of it, creating a just more meaningful revenue stream in the future. Mm. What I love about this podcast so far is that you are driving change for how people use their data, store their data, in the future monetize their data, now monetize their data, but also in many of your previous companies you've been driving change elsewhere, driving change for inclusion. And I'd really like for you just to share some of the work that you've done there and some of the steps. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to ask that question. I think diversity and inclusion is, is a topic that is, is very important to me and has been part of, is, is part of my career really in, the, in, in, in several capacities. I think where I was able to drive most change was actually being part of larger organizations. So earlier in my career, when I was an analyst at the OECD, which is a large international organization based in Paris, I was part of the, the organization LGBTQ plus network, where really I was able to connect with professionals from different organizations, from different countries, in a way that is just not something I would be able to do otherwise. And that was important because that organization groups 37 countries. So it's essentially an organization supported by 37 governments. And so to have that kind of space where, where, where there is a space for diversity, sexual minorities, to come together and build connections and build relationship, that was really important because not all 37 of these countries are very, what would you say, LGBTQ friendly. So that, that, was, that was a really important form. 
Later on, when I was working for Jefferies International and M Science, which is a, a research, a data-driven research house I was working for, I was privileged enough to be part of the kind of founding team or committee to establish the first LGBTQ employee network. And we did this right here in the same building. We're here right now in London. But that network was global. And I think that time when we did that was a really interesting time. It was right before COVID started and the Black Lives Matter movement. So there was a big focus as well about how do we as individuals who are now being locked down in our houses, how do we connect to the workplace? How, what, what does that mean to work in an organization when you actually don't leave the house anymore? And just opposed on that, there was this global movement of Black Lives Matter, an understanding that black and brown people and other minorities are finding their voices and voicing concerns about systematic oppression and systematic discrimination. And I was, I was working for an American company, and so those conversations were very central to what we were doing. And I was really happy that the, that, that, that those, that, that the workplace, Jeffries, where I worked for, didn't shy away from dealing with them. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. More generally, how far do you think we have come as an industry and what more is needed? Yes, as I mentioned, I was able to be part of that change in large organizations, working for a large investment bank or a large international organization. Th these kind of large organizations have all now established DNI protocols, policies, employee network groups, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think where our industry, specifically fintech, is probably going to struggle a little bit more is the fact that a lot of the organizations in our space are much, much smaller. And so there is this kind of thinking sometimes in smaller organizations like the one I was just working for where diversity is not necessarily something we should think about because we all wear 400 hats, we do so many things, we work in startups uh, and scale-ups and we just don't have the time. And employees who come, for example, with, I can speak for myself as someone who come as a gay man, who is very passionate about LGBTQ plus issues, you just don't necessarily find that space to voice that kind of, to discuss that culture and, and think about how diversity relates to your workplace, how, how your workplace should, should relate to these issues, uh, and why should we really care about diversity? So caring about diversity in smaller organizations is always a big challenge, I feel, obviously for budgetary and bandwidth reasons. Having said that, I think there's a lot of people who are now carrying that DNI culture into the startup community, into the, the entrepreneurship world, and kind of understanding that actually even more in smaller organization, an employee's ability to bring their whole self and their true self to the workplace is probably even more important. Because we're a small team, because we, do, we each do different roles and we have high degree of interactions with each other and we don't just clock out at 5 p.m. And it, because of all of this, being entirely comfortable with who we are is probably make or break for us to succeed as a business. Mm -hmm. 
And while we don't necessarily have the thousands of employees to form like social groups, et cetera, et cetera, and the budgets to buy canapes and Prosecco for pride socials, I think addressing the issues of diversity and inclusion is paramount in our industry mm. and in smaller organizations within our industry because it is paramount to succeed mm. and it's paramount for people to feel um, they're included yeah. and they're their true selves in order to really unleash the potential yeah. that they have. And I love the way that you've described that because you're spot on, especially this year in the industry, the amount of times I've heard, oh, Nadia, we can't look at inclusion right now, you know, we're, we're just looking at the bottom line. You know, your, your people are the bottom line, then feeling included. And just the way you explain that about this isn't a clock in, clock out culture. And people are expected to bring their whole selves and inverted commas to work. Well, then work needs to be able to support their whole selves. And I really love how you've brought a real, you really shined a light on that and, and the responsibility for all of us to do more, to drive that forward. So just pulling on that thread, how do we encourage more diversity of thought in our businesses and the safety needed for that? That is a really good question. To me, it feels like the question of diversity of thought is really tied to the diversity of people. Different people means different ways of thinking. If we all come from the same cookie cutter background, upbringing, sexual orientation, ethnic background, private schools, etc., we're likely to think alike because we were carved out of the same world of values, same experiences. Including people who come with different backgrounds, different experiences, different perspective is going to lead to different ways of thinking. And I think that is something that we're seeing across the board, specifically when you're designing products, for example, understanding that you want to design a product to a large amount, a large demographics. Well, you need to include people who represent that demographics when you do that. So in FinTech, when we, whether it's financial tools or whether it's payment tools or whatever it is, apps, having that diversity of thought is not only important in order to retain employees, make them feel included, make them feel like they can bring their true self and potential into the workplace, but it's also important to create good products that would serve the real world and not a smaller part of the world which, which, is, which doesn't represent yeah. The global population, yeah. Amazing. And I'm so pleased that you've drawn those two together because I think they're just so often, they're separated. Oh, oh let's ideate, let's create when actually we're not building safe places to do so. So I, I really appreciate your comments there. And um, a large part of this podcast is I love having all the audience feel like they can go and do something in their businesses to mm. drive change. So. What more, in your opinion, should we all be doing for workplace inclusion? I think my answer will resonate with very much what you do, Nadia. I think it's all about recruitment, right? Work, product, companies, it's people. It's about who you bring onto the workplace. We all have a natural tendency of hiring people in our own image, which is great. So for example, if you're starting a new company, having that diverse core in the very beginning will allow you to then continue that trend and continue hiring uh, along diverse lines. I think at, at the very least, we should all ask ourselves, am I hiring in my own image? Am I looking at diverse amount of candidates? Is there something there that I'm missing? 
why, what, what is the criteria I'm applying when I look into candidates, etc. I think that is really important. I think people need to challenge themselves about the way they think about recruitment. Mm -hmm. And I promise I didn't ask you to say that answer. No, I, honestly. <laughs> yeah. But look, Omo, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on this podcast series. Um, I've loved how you've taught me so much about data and just the future of how, as an industry, we're going to get better and better at understanding it and monetizing it. And I can definitely see you at the forefront of that. And what you've done for inclusion in the sector is brilliant, and I can't wait to see what happens next. So thank you for joining us on FinTech's DEI Discussions. Let's listen, let's learn, let's walk the talk. Mm -hmm.